Hello. Welcome to the afternoon session. My name is Dan Rubenstein. I'm chair of the Department of Ecology and Evolutionary Biology and the director of the African Studies Program. And it's my honor and pleasure to moderate this afternoon session. We have two speakers. Each will speak for 30 minutes, and then we will entertain questions. And those of you up in the balcony, try to wave to catch my attention because the bright lights make it hard to see up there. Our first speaker is Michael Pollan, who is a contributing writer to the New York Times Magazine, and he is author most recently of The Omnivore's Dilemma, A Natural History of Four Meals. It was published in April 2006 by Penguin Press, and many of you have read it and were getting it signed earlier. His previous books are The Botany of Desire, A Plant's Eye View of the World, which was published in 2001, A Place of My Own, published in 1997, and Second Nature, published in 1991. In addition, Michael served for many years as executive editor of Harper Magazine and is now the Knight Professor of Science and Environmental Journalism at the University of California in Berkeley. His articles have been anthologized in Best American Science Writing, Best American Essays, and the Norton Book of Nature Writing. Please welcome him with me to give his talk on the omnivore's dilemma, ethics and other considerations. Michael. Thank you very much, Dan. Thank you. Um, wonderful to be here, particularly because uh, some of my uh, favorite teachers in the food movement are here. Uh, I'm thinking Marion and Gary and Peter, uh, and some of the people I heard this morning for whom, uh, from whom I learned a great deal. I'm particularly grateful to Peter uh, because he was, uh, this, this book I just published is really a, is the story of an education. Unlike everybody you've heard today, I'm really not an expert of any kind. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a journalist and a questioner and a quester. And uh, so part of my quest took me right through the brain of Peter Singer. Um, and uh, in, a, in a kind of debate with him that took place mostly in my head, I, I learned uh, an awful lot and clarified my own thinking. So that's one of the reasons I'm here to honor Peter and, and my other teachers. Um, what I've been doing the last couple of years uh, has been learning a lot about the food system, following food chains. Um, it's taken me to farms and feedlots and slaughterhouses and forests and... Uh, uh, all sorts of places, and uh, but it hasn't taken me to a place where I might have learned how to do PowerPoint. Um, so I'm very sorry, but I don't have any image. You're just going to have to look at me or that that, that uh, coat of arms. Um, but my stock and trade are words, uh, so I'm going to uh, I'm going to limit it to that. And Marion's promised to show me how to do PowerPoint, and so maybe next time I come back. What I want to do um, briefly today is. Um, and you may be sorry to hear this, but it's to complicate your thinking a little bit um, and your eating decisions. And the, 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 this phrase, you know, vote with your fork, which I've been inscribing in books, and, and, uh, and there was a slide in Marion's lecture that, that had it, you know, seems very simple, um, but it's actually, when you think about it, it gets very complicated, exactly, because you have a lot of candidates to vote for, and they're not they're not all um, consistent with one another. Um, so I'm going to deepen your dilemma as omnivores for a little while, and I apologize in advance for that. I called my book The Omnivore's Dilemma, and, and, I, and that's what I want to talk about, The Omnivore's Ethical Dilemma, specifically today. Um, it's not my phrase. It's a phrase that's been used by some anthropologists and psychologists, uh, notably Paul Rosin, 
uh, and Claude Fischler in, in France. Um, and it's, I found it was a very good, sharp tool for cutting through a lot of issues. Um, so what is that? What is the omnivore's dilemma? Well, when a creature is not hardwired by their genes uh, to have a very dedicated diet in the same way that the koala bear eats eucalyptus leaves, that's it. The cow basically eats grass, that's it. They don't have the dilemma of the omnivore. Um, but to a creature like us and, and our fellow omnivores, um, and I don't know how we feel about this, but our, you know, animals like the rat and the cockroach, um, uh, things get a lot more complicated. It's a great boon to be able to eat anything. It means you can live just about anywhere on six of the seven continents. It means that when you, when you blow it with one food source, you can adapt another one. Um, uh, it's a very powerful evolutionary strategy, but it also poses these challenges. If you can eat anything, what should you eat? Um, now, that's a question as a matter of biology, and I'm not going to go into that um, because you have to avoid eating poison mushrooms and all sorts of things, but it's also an ethical issue. Um, what should we eat? Um, Claude Levi-Strauss famously wrote that for, for humans, food must be not only good to eat, but good to think as well. And that's really what we've been talking about today. Um, that question is replayed every time we decide not only whether to ingest that mushroom we found in the woods or not, um, but also when we decide whether to buy the organic strawberries or the local, to have the meat or the vegetarian entree, the low-fat or the low-carb diet, to observe kosher rules or halal. Um, are any of these things not only good to eat, but good to think as well? Um, our freedom from instinct in matters having to do with food, and we do have some food instincts. We love sweetness and we are somewhat repelled by bitterness, and these are good evolutionary strategies. But generally, the fact that nature is fairly silent about what we should and should not eat um, presents this huge problem. Uh, Leon Cass, in, in a wonderful book uh, I recommend to all of you called The Hungry Soul, argues that in our omnivorousness is the roots of our ethics. Because if you can eat anything, you've got to be careful. You could eat one another. You could eat other omnivores. So what's to prevent you? How do you draw lines? How do you govern this vast human appetite? So he argues that it's really the beginning of ethics. And he's not the only one. Rousseau pretty much said the same thing. Um, and even Aristotle, actually. Um, so omnivorousness brings with it the need for cultural regulation, um, bringing human habit under the government of taboos, customs, rituals, and the kind of culinary conventions you find all over the world. Um, but the ethic against cannibalism, I'm sorry to say, is, is really the only simple one. Um, they all get more complicated than that. And of course, there are places where even that one is complicated. But I think in this room, we can all agree shouldn't eat other people. So that's my first principle. Don't eat anyone else. Um, but after that, conventional or organic, organic or local, uh, should you worry more about energy, energetics in your food, or worry about pesticides and, and the, the load in the, on the land and the water? Or should you look beyond organic? Um, should you have the turkey or the tofu next week? Um, and what about the workers who grow and prepare the foods? Um, and we're in the midst of this very exciting, very challenging rethinking of all these questions. Um, and we, you know, we got a real taste of that this morning. 
I began my book with the, with the question, which is, what should we have for dinner? And some readers said to me, when they finished the book, you know, I just read 400 and some odd pages, and you never really told me. Um, and they felt a little let down. Um, and the reason for that is, one of my conclusions is, there's no right answer. Um, there is no single ethical framework that can, so that can navigate all the dilemmas we've looked at. Energy, animal rights and welfare, uh, the health of the land. Um, it turns out that some of these um, frameworks are just hard to reconcile with one another. Um, and in the same way that the, if you look at the history of eating and it looks in all these rules and all these cultures and it looks so relativistic, um, you know, I think we should get used to the fact there's going to be a kind of pluralism in our ethics of eating. Um, and I don't necessarily think that's such a bad thing, but I think we're going to, I think we should give up on the idea that there's some sort of unified theory of ethical eating uh, that we can arrive at. Um, because perfectly legitimate, equally legitimate ethical frameworks will lead you to different conclusions. And I want to walk you through three examples. Some will be very familiar to you. Um, organic seems straightforward, be an ethical thing to do by the organic. The ethic is, of course, largely environmental. Uh, it's better for the environment not to be using toxic pesticides, not to be putting them on the land and in the water. Uh, and if your concern, your first concern is cleaning up the environment anywhere in the world, you probably should buy organic. Um, it helps the workers to some extent, but actually in quite a limited extent. Um, and uh, though it, it should be said that most people choose organic for fairly selfish reasons. They think they're buying a product that is healthier, whether it is or not. Um, but once you look a little closer, as I did when I kind of followed the industrial organic food chain, you realize that there are many ethical considerations that go untouched by buying organic, and in fact, in some ways, uh, contradicted. Energy is a great example. We heard, we heard uh, this morning from Gary uh, the fact that um, we use an obscene amount of energy moving organic food around the world. The average item of organic food in your supermarket actually has more food miles on it than conventional food. Uh, I was very alarmed and, and disappointed to hear that. Um, I tell the story of an organic bagged mescaline salad from Earthbound Farms that if you have one of them here in, in uh, Princeton, 56 calories of fossil fuel energy will be required to deliver one calorie of food energy to your plate. Um, that product technically is organic. In any meaningful sense of the word, is it organic? I don't think so. I don't, I don't really think so. Um, a great deal of energy is used in, in organic food. Also, sometimes pesticides can actually reduce the amount of fossil fuel you need in your, uh, in your food. Um, and, and herbicide uh, specifically, um, because the, frequent, the, the way organic farmers deal with weeds, since they don't have herbicides, if they get a little too big to hand weed, is frequent tillings, many more tillings. They actually will irrigate fields that are unplanted, bring up the weeds, essentially grow a crop of weeds and cut them. Very wasteful of water and energy. So it doesn't, organic is, is not as simple a choice um, as you would think. Is it better for the workers? Well, there's a single organic farm that is unionized. I believe in the whole country, Swanton Berry Farm. Organic farmers uh, basically live a little too close to the bone to afford um, uh, substantially better 
working conditions, uh, at least in California, uh, for their employees. Uh, and that's a real disappointment of the organic movement. Um, local. We heard a lot about local today. Uh, and a lot of people do leave my book feeling that that's kind of where I come out and that I really support local. And it does certainly support a great many very positive values. Um, social values, economic values, environmental values, energy values. Uh, I'll just run through them very quickly because you know them all. Helps keep farmers in the community and the value of that. That's not a sentimental idea. There's a real body of local knowledge in farmers that we need in our communities. Um, the markets have become a very important public square. There's a social value in that. Peter has a wonderful statistic in his book that ten times as many conversations take place at a farmer's market uh, than in a supermarket. Um, that's a very important value. Uh, economic, keeping local economies healthy. Uh, the landscape, preserving farmland from sprawl. Um, cultural and biological diversity, as Gary pointed out. Very important. Um, energy, well... Not necessarily, but probably. Um, there, you can imagine scenarios where local farming can be very wasteful of energy, such as the hydroponic tomato in, uh, in, uh, in the north, as one example. Or uh, Peter has the wonderful example of, of, of Indian rice or Bangladeshi rice actually using less energy than California rice because of the way it's grown there. So as a simple framework to put on all your eating decisions, it's, it, there's, some, there's some problems with it. And there is also the issue, too, of uh, Peter says in his book that it's a selfish community ethic in that you want to keep the money in your community. And there are people around the world who depend on trade uh, and even the very small percentage of the, food, the American food dollar that might go to them would be enormously powerful. So you see how those ethics could come into uh, conflict. I would say, though, that, that most of the world trade in food, um, when you actually look at empirical cases, put aside fair trade, whatever you think of fair trade, very often when you buy that organic produce even from Mexico, um, you are supporting American companies uh, much more than you are Mexican farmers. Indeed, many Mexican farmers have been thrown off of very fine land where they used to farm so that that farm may be bought by larger growers who are essentially using the best land in Mexico to feed us, an overfed population. So, very hard to generalize. You really have to look. You have to know. You have to have some transparency. Um, and local, of course, isn't necessarily organic. Although, as a matter of practice, um, and, and, and I think this is a real problem when people go to the farmer's market and they go up to farmers and the only question they really know, the only question in their head is, are you organic? And it's really the wrong question to ask because now it has a specific legal meaning. Are you certified by the USDA? And if they're not, they have to say no. But it doesn't mean they're using pesticides. It doesn't mean they're using synthetic fertilizers. Because many organic farmers have simply checked out on that whole regime because they don't need it uh, or it's too cumbersome and expensive. So the proper question is, tell me how you grow your lettuce. What do you do about fertility? What do you do about insects? And you'll get a story and you'll engage that farmer and you will learn probably a story that will reassure you that this product is as good or better than that 3,000-mile pre-washed salad. Um, so it's very important we engage farmers directly and ask the right questions. 
Um, in general, if you're growing uh, a biodiverse polyculture, you're not going to need a lot of pesticide. You're going to have a pretty complex rotation. You're not even going to need a lot of fertilizer. Um, so, uh, in general, the, the meth, and you can't supply a local market with a monoculture. You can't just be a corn grower and survive uh, as a truck farmer or a CSA farmer. You need to be diverse. Um, then we come to the meat issue, which for me was the one I struggled with the hardest, the meat or the tofu. Um, and I'm not a vegetarian, um, and in fact, I'm particularly uh, grateful for Peter's um, kind of big tent approach to ethics, because I am a self-confessed killer of uh, wild boar and, uh, and chickens in my book, um, that he would include me in such a conference. Um, but I have the utmost respect for vegans and vegetarians for a simple reason, that they eat with much more consciousness than the rest of us. They've thought through the implications of their eating decisions. And most people, not in this room, but most people in America haven't done that work yet. So they've come out, though, in a different place. And this is where I found conflicts in the, um, in the ethical frameworks we have. Um, and that, to put it in the, in the simplest terms, I think taking human categories, especially having to do with the individual as the main unit of moral consideration and uh, sentience uh, as, as the important gradient to pay attention to, um, are actually very anthropocentric concepts. And they lead us down a path where um, we may not want to go. And that there is a point at which our environmental ethics may conflict with our uh, uh, ideas about the ideal kind of moral community. Um, I think this comes about partly, and I, and I talk about this in the book, so I'll be very brief about it, um, but it, a misunderstanding of the nature of domestication. Um, the animals on our farms uh, are not, in my view, if you take an evolutionary view, are not figures of oppression or exploitation necessarily. Um, many of them, most of them, have evolved in a specific direction to, in effect, trade their independence, their wildness for uh, freedom, uh, for, uh, I'm sorry, their, trade their freedom for um, protection, food, uh, the life that you can have under the roof of human culture. This is not a consensual thing in any kind of moral philosophical framework. It's simply an evolutionary thing. Many animals have, and plants have refused to be domesticated. For some of them, strictly by trial and error, no strategy, no intention involved, no con consent, um, have found through trial and error lots of accidents that this life provided for their interests in a Darwinian sense, which is to say more copies of themselves, more habitat, more of their genes uh, sent into the future. Um, so that for these animals, farm animals, which are often disrespected, um, but I actually regard domestic creatures as, as some of the cleverest on the planet, and again, that is, that is a metaphor, obviously, um, that for them, the good life depends on the good farm. Far too few of them have the good farm as their habitat, and less now than ever before. Um, but these are animals that, when they do live in the good farm and have the humane life there, are realizing what they are on this planet to realize. And, of course, animals will only be on farms to the extent that we eat them.
Um, and uh, I would also submit that from everything I've been able to learn studying um, sustainable agriculture, it will be very hard to, def to, to create a truly sustainable agriculture without animals. I believe animals are a very important part of the kind of polycultures we need. If we really want to create farms that are carbon neutral, that don't take a great many inputs, that do not remove fertility from the soil, that actually build the soil, build biodiversity, I think you're going to need a lot. You're going to need a certain number of animals on those farms. Many fewer than we have, many fewer than we're eating right now. There's no question we need to eat less meat. Um, but I'm not prepared to write off eating animals. Um, the other reason that I think it's important, though, too, is um, uh, that I, I'm just not sure this, the vegan utopia, if you do that thought experiment, will be a sustainable place. Yes, we will not be using all this grain to feed animals. Very, very important. On the other hand, there are many places in this country the whole dry part of this country that you saw on some of the maps today, where animals are the most sustainable way to take food off the land. And if you do not, even though there might be enough land in the Midwest to grow vegetables for everybody, you're condemning people in certain regions to being part of a very long, very industrialized food chain. Um, so that I think there are places where the most sustainable food chain is that sunlight, grass, ruminant, human. Uh, food chain, which is incredibly elegant, beautiful, and actually can create soil. Um, and uh, I would be sorry to see that go. Um, so that's another, you know, example of kind of how the frames, the, the, the frame of our environmental ethics may come into con uh, conflict with other frames having to do with human morality. There are other examples. If you read Aldo Leopold's uh, beautiful environmental land ethic. He talks about, you know, what is right for a place is what contributes to its stability and uh, health and integrity. And that sounds uncontroversial, but, you know, you could argue that removing humans would be right under his environmental ethic. So I despair of the possibility of having a single ethical frame to deal with nature and deal with the community that the human community we're part of. And I don't know that we can combine the human community with the natural community. So I'll, I'll leave that there, and maybe we can take it up in questions. Um, so you see the, the omnivores' ethical dilemmas are not easily resolvable, and that you need to choose often between competing values. And the reason I don't tell people what they should eat is that depending where they start out, depending on what they value most, if their concern is energy, if their concern is the land, if their concern is their health, if their concern is the animals, they're going to come out in a different place. And you know what? That's fine. That's absolutely fine. They're going to come out a lot better than where most of us are today. And that's why what is most important, and this is the ethic that I want to leave you with, and it's one we haven't talked about too much today, and it's the one that I think is particularly relevant to our next speaker, um, is the important thing is the ethic to know. To know what you're eating. To know these few simple things. What are you eating? Where did it come from? How did it find its way to your table? And what, in a true accounting, it really cost? The sacrifice of life and labor and even ethical principles that went into preparing it. Basically, to eat with consciousness is really the key. And that's what brings me to the corporate responsibility part. Eating with consciousness is impossible 
when the food chain that we're at the end of is opaque uh, and secretive. When the slaughterhouses bar their doors to reporters, um, or the companies refuse to tell us who their suppliers are or exactly what's in the food. Um, and I think that's something we can all agree on as consumers and citizens, to demand a more transparent food chain. Um, you know, I do a thought experiment in the book. You know, what if we passed a law that the walls of all the slaughterhouses had to be glass? Imagine the change that that would bring. Simply by giving people the option, very few would take it, but giving people the option to see what happens in there. They simply, it would be as that, that language in the Geneva Conventions about torture, it would shock the conscience and it would stop. There are other ways to do that. Uh, there was a wonderful experiment, I'll offer this as another thought experiment, in Denmark, where uh, they, uh, a supermarket chain added a second barcode to all the food that they were selling, or at least all the meat. I'm not sure if it went for the vegetables. And you could take that package of meat, that anonymous, shrink-wrapped, you could easily forget it's an animal package of meat that we all see in the supermarket, and you could bring it up to a kiosk and run that other barcode under the scanner, and up would come video of the farm where that animal lived. And you could press another button to figure out exactly what that animal had eaten, what day it had been slaughtered, and you could even get a picture of the slaughterhouse. Imagine the changes that would bring to our food system if we had such, a, uh, such an option. Um, so, you know, this may be a naive journalist view of the world that given the right information, all will be well. Uh, we do operate on that. That's one of our occupational prejudices. Um, but I am convinced if people ate in the full knowledge of what they were doing, and they wouldn't do this every day. They wouldn't be bringing every package up to that scanner. I'm convinced they would make better choices, whatever those choices were. Better for the farmers, better for the animals, better for the environment. And if the companies really want to help, they could start by opening their doors and windows wide. Thank you very much. Okay. My glasses on. Our second speaker is Bob Langert who's the Vice President of Corporate and Social Responsibility for McDonald's Corporation. Bob is engaged in social responsibility issues since the late 1980s. In his role as Vice President, Bob contributes to a wide range of areas, including McDonald's commitment to the environment, animal welfare, balanced active lifestyles, and supply chain responsibility, and much more. He has helped to lead McDonald's Global Environmental Council, the International Scientific Advisory Council, and the Global Advisory Council on Balanced Active Lifestyles. In 2002, Bob coordinated the release of McDonald's first worldwide social responsibility report. He and his team collaborated with many stakeholders to recently complete McDonald's third worldwide corporate responsibility report, which was released in August 2006. He is also involved in global environmental management systems and issues, McDonald's Animal Welfare Council and global supply chain issues, which includes sustainable agriculture, animal welfare, biotechnology, and animal agricultural issues and nutrition. So please welcome Bob. He's going to talk on fork to farms.
title of his talk will be Fork to Farm Responsibilities, a Perspective from the Golden Arches and Beyond. Well, good afternoon. And uh, great to be here and be part of this dialogue. Uh, McDonald's is in the news a lot. Uh, we make a lot of headlines. Uh, seems like everybody has an opinion of McDonald's. Uh, so when Peter called me up and said that this was about food, ethics, and the environment, I figured, hey, I've been spending 18 years working on this. Uh, let's, let's talk together about it. It's funny, you know, Michael is talking about opening the doors. I want to make a uh, pitch. Uh, I'm not an author. I have, I'm, I'm writing a book in my head. Hope to join your company pretty soon. But uh, I think these things were in the back, our corporate responsibility report, and it's called Open Doors. So certainly from our perspective, uh, we agree there needs to be open doors, open discussion. These issues are very complex, pros and cons, trade-offs, et cetera. And uh, we want to be part of that conversation. We don't want to be left out. As a matter of fact, we have a, uh, I, have a, I have a blog. So I invite you to uh, join the blog. Perhaps if you don't get your, to your question today, uh, you can send me a, a question on the blog. Because I, I do this blog because for the same reason. I really think it's good to have a open discussion. Uh, I love this today so far because it's just reconfirming to me how interesting and complex all these issues are. And they deserve to be uh, not just in Princeton University. They deserve to be in mainstream America, mainstream world. So when McDonald's talks about these issues on our website or in our discussions, I think just having the discussion raises a debate and raises the uh, dialogue towards what we can do in the future. You know, just a, a little bit about my, myself. Uh, I got to know Peter in the mid to late 90s because really my first entree into uh, the whole food world was related to animal welfare. And we both, both knew uh, a really great uh, guy, animal activist called Henry Spira, that was really quite a uh, nudge to McDonald's in the late 80s, early 90s, uh, and then he finally said, hey, McDonald's, you ought to go meet Dr. Temple Grandin. I was talked about this morning that she's one of the best animal behavioral scientists in the world. She's got a program that perhaps you can implement with your suppliers. I'll talk about that more later, but that's how we became connected. Uh, I started on environmental issues because I was in charge of buying some packaging back in 1988. I actually started at McDonald's in 1983 as in charge of truck drivers. I just never thought I'd go from truck drivers to dealing with what I'm dealing with over the last 18 years. But I was moved into buying packaging, foam packaging, paper packaging, breakfast platters. And that's, if you remember, that's when we had the CFCs, the ozone layer, the Montreal Protocol. And I was in charge of kind of phasing it out, uh, also looking to set up recycling systems. And that's when we worked with the uh, leading influential environmental group called the Environmental Defense back in 1991. The whole idea was to take a look at what was then you know, a very controversial issue. If you, if you talk about the garbage crisis, I wouldn't equate it to the whole obesity debate of today, but it was quite an emotional issue back in 89, 90, 91. And we decided to tackle that one head on by working with a leading environmental group, invited them in to our doors, open doors to all of our people working in our restaurants. What can we do to reduce waste? Well, it worked like magic. And uh, even though Fortune magazine said we were getting in bed with the enemy, uh, the fact is we worked collaboratively to figure out ways, 42 ways, to reduce, reuse waste within McDonald's. I illustrate this example. It's a little bit astray from the topic here, but only because during the whole decade of the 90s, we ended up reducing 300 million pounds of waste due to this collaborative partnership. 
And it was back then that I thought, if we can spend our money and time and resources doing this related to the packaging for our food, we ought to be able to come up with better ways for food, for food in agriculture. So I always had a vision that we could create the environmental defense partnership of food and make food more sustainable. So really, it has been a journey for me, and uh, I want to share you know, some of the thoughts that we've uh, done and some of the actions we've taken. Uh, Michael, you're so right about these. I had some comments here about the trade-offs. And uh, you know, to me, at McDonald's, we're the ones at the end of the day that the buck stops here. We're the, we're the purchaser. That's why the title of my talk is uh, Fork the Farm. And when you think of McDonald's, I want you to think that, because at the end of the day, we are the ultimate consumer. Uh, and I have a lot in common with you, too, Michael. I'm not an expert in anything. Uh, so I work with all these complicated issues, so the expertise is to figure out where to go uh, to get expertise. And uh, so, you know, there's trade-offs. And I think this is really uh, fascinating to figure out, at the end of the day, what are we going to do at McDonald's? Or if you're another food retailer, how are you going to take this, this idea that, hey, you know, animals, people love pets, people protect wildlife, but people like, some people like to eat meat. Uh, nutrition, we have a lot, of, a lot of the world that has malnutrition, and we have trouble moving around places. And then we have a whole set of people that are overeating and obese. Uh, the local issues, which you heard about this morning, uh, we like to do that as well in my household, but there's also the competing need of affordability, which is really important to consumers, and convenience. Uh, certainly fruits and vegetables are important, but I know when I look at how we get our fruits and vegetables, I know the carbon footprint and energy footprint is not all that attractive. Uh, I think we'd like to have a vision of free-range animals, uh, but we also want to make sure that our food is absolutely safe, healthy, and secure. Uh, all these things, I'm not sure, can be done all at once. So then you have to make decisions like we have to make as to what to do and what type of direction to give to our suppliers. So I wanted to just go through uh, what we're doing first. That's the first part. Uh, secondly, I want to go through uh, what we feel our challenges are. You know, where, where are our hurdles? Uh, and then also I want to talk about what more we feel we can do because we feel we're just kind of partway through it all ourselves, and we're optimistic about the future. Then I want to finish with some thoughts for the future. To me, uh, when I think of corporate responsibility at a McDonald's, I think it all does start with, uh, with education and awareness and asking the right questions. It's sort of what Michael was talking about. And so really, when I consider what my role is and people that work in our team and others cross-functionally at McDonald's, we need to know what we're buying where it comes from, all those questions that you're asking. Because how are we ever going to make decisions as to what's best without that knowledge? I also feel that in the corporate America in general, I'd say McDonald's in particular, there's no barrier to doing more uh, that might be stereotypical. Rather, I would say it's a, a lack of knowledge, not a lack of caring. So I think we need to learn more. So what we have done, we've done a lot of training internally. I'm not sure if you're familiar with the Natural Step. It's an environmental you know, organization based out of Sweden, but they have these four system conditions. And we brought them in, and they trained our top worldwide supply chain management. I always remember the meeting in Frankfurt, Germany, to go through the uh, four system conditions and to do backcasting and sustainable gap analysis. 
And it was wonderful to go through this workshop where our supply chain leaders are really taught the very principles uh, of sustainability using that framework. Uh, we have worked with Conservation International, a leading conservation group, and works a lot in agricultural issues that also work with us and train us. And we have, through all that work, we have established a uh, supply chain vision related to social responsibility, and it's one of our three pillars of strategy for supply chain. But our vision for the future is this. We envision a supply system that profitably yields high-quality, safe products without supply interruption while creating a net benefit for people, their communities, biodiversity, and the environment. That's what we're working towards. The uh, a highlight to me was about six years ago, after this natural step training, we brought in at our, we have a biannual convention where 15,000 people from McDonald's come in. It's a great event. And we had an off meeting, off, offshoot meeting with all of our suppliers from around the world. So we had about 500 of our top suppliers, their leadership, and we had a segment with the supply chain leader here talking about sustainability and what it, meets, what it means for our business. So they got a dose of our values and a dose of our uh, direction that we want to take, and we've been working on it ever since. We continue to do this. This is a big part of our work, is translating all the concerns and issues that you're dealing with here through our filter back through our suppliers. Uh, just within the last two, three months, I have uh, been presented major segments to this, what we call the Supplier Summit. Our top suppliers came into Oak Brook, Illinois, our headquarters. I was just down to Coca-Cola to speak to their leadership about the needs that they provide to McDonald's. And just within the last two weeks, social responsibility was a big part of the agenda for our Asia-Pacific meeting with all of our suppliers. So it's alive and well. So education awareness comes first. Secondly, we work very hard to uh, integrate systems, uh, a systems approach. These issues can be emotional and, and all that. What we want to do is get it to be more of a rational, uh, systemic approach that has measurement and accountability. Uh, so one of the chief ways we do that is we have a, it's an internal term. It's called SQI, Supplier Quality Index. But on the Supplier Quality Index, that's how we review our suppliers on an annual basis. And we just don't review them for, hey, the price and affordability and, and the quality and, and the uh, dependability and the research and innovation. Those are all important criteria. But part and parcel is what are they doing related to our code of conduct and people? What are they doing with the environmental scorecard? How are they following through on animal welfare? These are all things that are part of, uh, part of this, uh, the SQI system. Now, once we uh, integrate this into the thinking, obviously you've got to have programs that back it up. And we mostly work with uh, what we call direct suppliers. So when we buy, it's not from you know, soybean growers. It's, it's not from corn growers. It's not from beef, beef ranchers. We buy from, let's say, buns. We buy from a bun supplier that buys all the ingredients, comes into his plant, and he bakes it and delivers it to McDonald's. So our, we call it our first sphere of influence is the direct suppliers. So we have two key programs with direct suppliers. One we call our code of conduct or social accountability in which we have a rigorous set of standards for what the workplace expectations are. We go around and train suppliers around the world to what these expectations are. We have an audit system to back that up in a scoring system. So again, a system, measurement, accountability, feeds back to supplier quality index. 
We were uh, a little late. That was developed back in 1983, so it's pretty well developed. Uh, admittedly, I think we were a little slow on the gun related to the environmental factors for our suppliers. Now, we could figure out in our restaurants what that means, whether it's recycling, packaging, energy use, water. That's very definable and more controllable by us. But we were grappling with for a long time, ever since I was telling you back in 1991, how to integrate the environment with our suppliers without being prescriptive, because that's not what it's all about. We don't know what it's like to, to do these things, so we want our suppliers to take leadership. So we partnered, again, with the Conservation International to have them work with our, our five top suppliers for, uh, for beef, poultry, pork, potatoes, and buns. And the five suppliers worked together with Conservation National, with McDonald's, and we developed an environmental scorecard. And uh, it's been very successful. It's still on the early stages of development, but we measure four things. And granted, there's more things that we could measure, uh, but we're measuring what we think is most important and doable, which is air emissions, water use, energy use, and, and uh, waste. And uh, what's really pleasing is that the suppliers like it, they support it, the results are terrific, and they're telling us it doesn't cost money as well. So it's just, I think these things can work when you work together. Now, we, have, we do have several things that we do that would be uh, in the indirect world of supply chain management. Uh, and, and, I, and I wish I could bring you in to our world to realize kind of what it's like to have influence, because we realize that we do have influence. We're a big brand. Uh, uh, we're in the news, like I said before. But when it comes to the indirect suppliers, you know, it's a, it's a different case as to how to wield influence. It's a lot easier to tell our bun supplier or our patty supplier what to do, but to tell the slaughterhouse or the feedlots or the beef rancher, you know, every step removed becomes more difficult. But we've been working at it, and we're chipping away. And uh, I think the, the first area that uh, I'm very proud of is the work in animal welfare. And again, that's one of the areas that I first started working with when they told me back in 1997, go with Temple Grandin. She's got this uh, animal welfare measurement system that's based on science and measurement that can actually measure the humane treatment of animals once they reach the processing facility, the slaughterhouse. And uh, hey, I, I grew up in the south side of Chicago, and I never saw a cow until we went to the Lincoln Park Zoo when I was probably 15 years old. And uh, so a city slicker without a farm background, I was kind of wondering the ethical issues myself as to how I would, uh, they did open the doors for me, by the way, <laughs> the, in terms of what I would see and how I would react to it. But uh, I saw things I didn't like, you know, that certainly uh, impact me and, and, and impact the motivation to do more. But overall, I was comfortable with it because Temple has a philosophy, and if you know Temple Grandin, highly recommend her books, uh, Animals in Translation. Uh, um, trying to remember some, just look up her work. She's very inspirational because uh, she's autistic as well. You ought to see her when she goes into uh, the supplier facility. She's like a rock star. And, and she goes in, and people come out of the woodwork because she's so, such a renowned scientist, animal welfare, behavioral uh, expert. And uh, to be with her going through the uh, facilities trying to figure out how we can do this with our suppliers was a great experience. Uh, she feels that companies like us need to address level one concerns at a minimum. And to me, that's for sure where our 
ethics and our, and our responsibilities are, which is these animals need to be treated with respect related to being free of abuse, neglect, and cruelty. And, you know, when I was there in some plants, you would see instances they didn't like. So how are we going to set up a system to not have things like that happen again? So she trained our suppliers. She's traveled the world uh, with her system. Uh, we went from not having any animal welfare auditing system back in 1997. I, when I say we, it's a collective we, not just McDonald's, the whole industry. To today, McDonald's audits all of its facilities around the world, which is about 500 facilities. About 99% of them pass, uh, which is good. Uh, basically, most of our competitors do the same thing. And uh, I think Temple says in, in the, your book, Michael, that it's kind of night and day, uh, pre-McDonald's, post-McDonald's time. And I can tell you that when I went into facilities back in 1997, it could be uh, noisy and, and uh, a little bit chaotic and distractions for the animals. And today, uh, I really think it is quite a, a sea change. So I think that's a great example of a, uh, a model that could work here. Because you take a, a tough issue like animal welfare, if you can match it up with a, a great expert based on science like a Dr. Temple Grandin or an environmental defense like on packaging, if you can get suppliers into the fold willingly uh, through a collaborative arrangement from McDonald's asking for it, and you have time on your side, not pressure, not crisis management. When you have crisis management, you tend to do things that perhaps don't make sense. Short-term benefit, not for the long-term. You can really come up with a great system. So I think the animal welfare system is a good model for other types of issues that we should duplicate. And we're looking to duplicate them. Because the best thing about my job is working with experts. We worked with the environmental defense again related to an important food issue related to antibiotics. So back in uh, about 2000 or so, we uh, formed the Antibiotics Coalition with some of our suppliers and other experts to figure out how we could address this important issue where the overuse of antibiotics in general were having some impact on their usefulness for, in human medicine and affecting human beings. So we wanted to see what we could do in our role to limit their use. And we came up with uh, our antibiotics policy that basically uh, eliminates growth-promoting antibiotics for what we control, and what we control is mostly poultry. Uh, and we have a preference program for beef and pork. And uh, we need to do more on beef and pork, and this is where we need something related to more scale and more, even more demand for other retailers like us asking for the same thing, because we'd like to see our meat come from sources that don't use growth-promoting antibiotics and use much less antibiotics overall. Uh, Becky Goldberg from the Environmental Defense was talking about fish this morning. Uh, she represents, you know, one of the most premier environmental organizations that I've ever worked with. Uh, great scientists like her work in fish. And uh, to me, the uh, I lost my train of thought here. Oh. She was talking about fish, so I wanted to bridge into our sustainable fish program because uh, this is another thing that uh, we buy, and we buy a lot of fish. And there are sustainability issues related to fish as to uh, uh, not having fish to have. You know, hey, used to be off the northeast coast of the United States, you had codfish that we use, and it's no more there. So we want to have fish in the future. And we partnered with Conservation International to come up with a uh, – a scorecard of sorts, it's uh, red, yellow, and green. It's very interesting. So every year we grade all of our fisheries. And if they're green, they're great. If they're yellow, imperfect, 
and if they're red, they're not sustainable. And we, we take action on the red, we work with the yellow, and I can tell you that of the 56 or so thousand metric tons of fish that we buy a year, about a third of that has been shifted over time because of this program. So again, you can see the theme following through, setting up a system, having measurement, having accountability. And I think we're doing a pretty good job with fish. I'd like to see us do, do more. Uh, before I get off the indirect supplier issue, I think two things happened this year that are interesting relate to other food and environmental ethical issues. One is Greenpeace released a report about soya growth uh, in uh, Brazil impacting the rainforest. And they end ended up sending, I, I think they came to about 70 restaurants in the United Kingdom dressed in chicken suits. Now you may wonder why they dress in chicken suits. It's because McDonald's uh, buys, through good intentions of McDonald's Europe, buys soya from Brazil because it's non-genetically modified. But over time, with the growth of soya in Brazil, the studies show that it was infringing upon the Amazon rainforest. So they used McDonald's as a platform to release the report and protest and highlight that. Now, you know, I know they don't have a big advertising budget, and uh, so showing up at, at McDonald's gets attention, and it got our attention. And we appreciated the attention, because we immediately met with Greenpeace. We said, let's look at your study. We talked to other experts, and we said to Greenpeace, you're right. It is a problem. There is infringement on the rainforest, and we don't want to be part of it. So what are we going to do about it? And I think this is another important example of working together, because we've worked with Greenpeace to set up a coalition of other retailers to go back to the traders in Brazil to say that we don't want this. And you probably read in the news a couple months ago where the traders came up with a three-year moratorium to not source soya from these places until a program can be put in place to ensure that it meets all the codes and laws. This is a good success story. We need more of it. Uh, something uh, a little bit different has been related to tomatoes. You may have seen the news uh, related to McDonald's, related to uh, a group called a Coalition of Immokalee Workers in Florida. And they want uh, uh, us and other companies to pay more for the workers there. We agree with the issues that are down there. Uh, we agree more needs to be done. Higher wages, better code of conduct, more worker voice. Uh, but we're not tomato growers. As a matter of fact, I think we're about 1.5% of the business. So, but we're very willing to do what we can, and we are. We have developed a stronger code of conduct. Uh, and we've developed the grower standards. Uh, all people that work for our suppliers need to be employees, not contract labor. And we have a preference program that we're shifting business, and we've eliminated suppliers, and we're shifting business to those that pay the highest wages. So those are things that we can do. Now, I'm not a uh, food and nutritional expert. We can cover some of those questions on the Q&A. But I do think that when it comes to responsibility in this area, that we have a responsibility to provide choices and to provide information. We want our customers to be uh, educated and informed so they can make the best choices for them. And when you take a look at our menu over the last three or four years, you'll see for sure that we've made so many changes to, related to what we're doing. Uh, the salads are selling well. Uh, I think we sold uh, 300 million pounds of mixed greens last year, 102 million pounds of tomatoes, 51 million pounds of fruit. Ray Kroc, our founder, once said, I'm not sure what we're going to sell in the future, 
But whatever it is, it's going to be a lot of it. Now, I look at that as an opportunity because look at how things are shifting. And sometimes you wonder what comes first, uh, the uh, creating demand or is the demand already there? Because, you know, we, side, we tried salads twice before. In the mid-'80s, it was a flop. Mid-'90s, it was a flop. Remember the McLean Burger? I think 1996. We spent $50 million to promote the McLean Burger. It didn't sell. We sold two a day. So we're doing things differently, but I think a lot of the changes over the last three years is not only our work, but reflecting consumer changes as well. Well, I see I only have about five minutes here to talk about challenges and things to do in the future, so I'll go quickly through my uh, list of about nine or ten things, and we can see what questions you might have. Uh, first challenge to me is how to create systemic change. I've already covered that, and you can see the things that we're trying to do. But it's a challenge. We want to use less antibiotics, but, you know, we can't do it by ourselves. Uh, another challenge for us is how to influence consumers even more. What I mean by this, I see this in the environment, for example. If you go to Europe, you'll see that we have extensive recycling systems for the consumer. Consumers actually take their waste in many of the countries, sort it out. In Sweden, believe it or not, you take your beverage and there's a cylinder by the waste container that you pour it into so that it conserves the water and the ice, it doesn't go away as garbage and, and all that. And the c customers do it. I was in charge of having recycling in 1,000 restaurants in the United States back in 1990. Only 20% of the people would recycle. And to see the people's behavior, you know, people didn't want to do it. So, again, how, how can we influence these types of things? Uh, a third challenge is how to engage ever more successfully with stakeholders. Uh, I've given you some good examples of engagement with stakeholders, but speaking more broadly, you know, I can't say that it's a common theme for companies to partner with uh, NGOs, academics. It's things that are, we're doing more, more, more of, but we think our suppliers should be doing more of this stakeholder engagement as well. I think there, there's some challenges related to cost. Uh, I get a question a lot about does corporate social responsibility, doesn't it just add costs and how is that choice? I, I saw the CEO of Timberland on TV the other night, and he said, well, you know, that's a false choice. And I totally agree. I've always thought that either it's a wise investment. Some of these programs have been wise investments where we invest in a laying hen policy, sustainable fish, antibiotics. We kind of see a, a change happen across the board. Uh, or, to me, more likely, it's just not really spending more money, but spending it more wisely. Now, what more do we need to do? Uh, I think we can do more establishing better a better purchasing preference system. If you read our report, uh, we did invite six students from the Haas School of Management in Berkeley, open doors to go into our facilities, both the slaughterhouses and the feedlots and the ranches, et cetera. And their report, uh, which is their report, their words, it's, it's all in here. So they wrote about the good, the bad, the ugly, and made their recommendations to McDonald's. Their number one recommendation was to come up with a preference program that there's a lot of good practices out there. Uh, why can't McDonald's, through its upstream suppliers, buy from those that have the best practices? Well, we agree. We agree, too. And, but we sit around a room, we're trying to figure out how to do it. So we haven't figured out how to do it, because that's not normally what we purchase. The, uh, we need to come up with better measurement. 
Uh, although I've talked about the idea of uh, systems and measurement and accountability, when you read through our report, we have a set of, the first time ever, we have a set of key performance indicators in there that measure about 22 areas of corporate social responsibility. Now, when it comes to food, how do you really measure your progress on food? Yeah, nobody's really, people haven't figured this out for the environment and even social issues with people, but food, how do you measure our progress for helping out the obesity issue? Right now we measure choices, but we know it needs to be more than that. On supply chain, a lot of our measurements are more process-related versus results. So I think we need to do more. I also think we need to be more vigilant about our current programs. Dr. Temple Grandin constantly reminds us, like an animal welfare, don't let up. You know, sometimes it is easy to let up when things are going well and all of a sudden your suppliers let up. So we try to stay very vigilant about the policies we have in place. Lastly, I think we can do more to inform and motivate and catalyze our own, our own people. We have 1.6 million people that work for McDonald's. And when you multiply the supplier network that we reach, we know that we can do a lot of good by just reaching our own people, teaching them the things that you're learning here that I know, getting the thoughts and ideas behind what we believe is a company down to the 31 restaurants and the 50 people that work in those restaurants and all of our suppliers is a big part of what we want to do. So for the future, we want to be part of this uh, solution. We want to be part of the dialogue. Uh, we're open to uh, further change. Uh, we think there's a, a role for uh, this, this uh, modern agricultural system to uh, take these social and environmental issues to a higher level. We think collaboration is a big part of, the, part of it as well. I welcome you to uh, read our book and uh, give us a, a blog entry and continue to be part of the conversation. Thank you. Okay, we're open for questions. There should be people with microphones running around. Hello, there we go. Um, just one concerning thought or question uh, to Bob. And it's, it's confusing to me. I, think, I always think of the customer having the leverage, you know, and a, and a rather large customer having a lot of leverage. But you talk about uh, your suppliers and not being able to, let's talk about the antibiotic usage in beef and not being able to get them to, to make changes. My thought is if you can't do it with your clout, your size and your volume, who can and uh, we uh, would love to join a coalition of other like-minded companies to call for the same thing. Uh, when we worked with the Environmental Defense Fund on that particular project, we were like we're trying to recruit other retailers join on in, and we had Bon Appetit join us, but they're not—I mean, they're a good company, but they're not huge. We couldn't recruit others. We've been out there to, uh, uh, at conferences and trade association meetings asking to do more in this area. We've been asking for other retailers to join this effort. So I'm with you. 
I agree. I'm curious to know why, why you can't do it alone, though. Is it a matter of losing competitive advantage? Well, it's because you're changing the agricultural system. But, I mean, if you So, just... you know, I mean, it's because we buy, we don't have specialized beef facilities or pork facilities. So you can't ask, you know, I wish we did. If we had a dedicated, see, poultry is dedicated. We have dedicated facilities just for McDonald's so we can actually implement these changes. We don't have dedicated facilities, so they can't just do it for a small slice of business. But, I mean, if you just said, okay, we're going to, you know, we saw, we saw those images of the uh, battery cages of the hens. Um, and if you, if you were to decide as a company that that was a priority and you were and you were only use uh, free-roaming hens for your eggs, you don't think the industry would follow? Well, we do, uh, we do have dedicated facilities for laying hens, and so that's why we're able to uh, do that. So that's an interesting story in itself. When we introduced our laying hen well, when we introduced our laying hen policy back in 90, 1991, we used to have a, a whole bunch of local suppliers for eggs. And so, again, it's this conflict between local and, and so on. And when we went back and said, well, we're limiting forced molting, which is the star starving of the birds, and we're increasing the cages by, you know, half more size and uh, all that, uh, they didn't want to do it. So we actually had to set up uh, a couple of dedicated facilities for McDonald's on laying heads. So uh, that's the conundrum. Uh, the conundrum is uh, I think we share some of these values. Uh, I think we can do what we can control. Uh, I, I think you need to put our purchasing perspective that, uh, yes, we're a big purchaser and a big brand name, but the reality of when you actually go in and buy things is a, a little bit different. We're, we're part of a, a larger mix, and uh, you know, we're, we're working on you know, influencing what we can. Uh, we've tried to have a, a premium paid for, you know, traceability of beef, yet very few people uh, want to do that. So even when you pay, f pay for it, we're not always getting, you know, what we want. Hello. Uh, first of all, thank you for coming down today. I'm a, uh, a dairy farmer here in New Jersey. And yes, there are actually dairy farms in New Jersey. Uh, uh, during the break, I took the liberty of reading through your uh, Open Doors book. I didn't read the whole thing, but I did read the animal welfare section. And the work you've done with Temple Grandin is very uh, commendable. And unfortunately, there's nothing in there about the rest of the animal's life. Uh, the truth is, thanks to the work that Temple Grandin has done, the happiest day in a beef cattle's life is the day it's slaughtered at this point. Um, and in terms of the welfare of the animals before they take the magic ride up the stairway to heaven, um, you know, probably you could eliminate 10% of your antibiotic use and 10% of most of the other problems in your food chain with beef by buying 10% of your beef from non-feedlot sources. And if you started with half a percent the first year and 1% the next year and ramped it up, the industry would follow you because it's actually cheaper to produce beef on grass than on grain. The problem is, is that the farmers are all locked into selling the beef that they think the industry wants to buy, which is very fat, young cows. And at some point, you know, we have to look at all the issues, animal welfare, um, energy use, uh, antibiotic residue, it all comes down to this. Cows evolved 
on grass. And if McDonald's can see clear to migrating themselves towards beef from cows raised on grass, an awful lot of the problems go away all at once. Is there any plan, is there any discussion towards that end at McDonald's? Well, if you look at McDonald's uh, globally, uh, there is grass-fed beef. So certainly if one were to look at the, the, the future and what the potential is, I mean, we have grass-fed beef, I think, primarily in Australia. It's, uh, it's predominantly in South America as well. So, you know, but that's, we're just, we're, we're buying from what the infrastructure is. So your, your question is, can, now can we change an infrastructure in the United States that is based on a, a different model? Uh, and uh, we do have some grass-fed beef that we use in, in the United States as well. So I think, it's a, I think it's a good, interesting issue to explore in the future. I mean, I think there should be different options. That's why I like the purchasing preference program approach, that where there are best practices, whether it's related to antibiotics, uh, watershed management, uh, you know, shade for cattle, uh, you know, energy use, we should be rewarding those upstream suppliers that have those best practices. And I think that is a great way to use the money that we already have that buy these products. We should reward. The, the, we want to be rewarded, too, by the way. We want to be rewarded in our field for what we do. I mean, if, you, if you are going to go to a, an informal eating out place to eat, hey, take a look at what we're doing versus your other choices. I want you to do that. When you make that choice, I want you to do that, just like we should be then doing the same thing with our suppliers. Up in the back. Can you get a microphone up there? Hi, I also just want to say thank you um, for engaging in this conversation, but I was wondering, you said McDonald's is the ultimate consumer, and just in terms of ethics, I mean, we talk a lot about excess consumption being unethical in a world of finite resources, and I'm wondering how, as McDonald's continues to grow, and you continue to use more water and land, et cetera, all of our resources, how um, you can reconcile corporate social responsibility with that. Well, part of, our, part of our growth strategy now probably conforms to your thinking. And uh, our company took a big turnaround three or four years ago when we said we're not going to grow by becoming bigger. We're going to grow by becoming better. And uh, I think that's been a key corporate strategy of ours related to all the, the business parts of McDonald's. Uh, you're not seeing us. Uh, we used to, back in the 80s, build 1,000, 1,500 restaurants a year, and that was the growth model. And today it's not sustainable. I think we're going we're gonna to grow because we're a good choice as well. So when you take a look at why we've been successful over the last three or four years, uh, take a look at our menu. It is very different and much uh, uh, broader. You know, the, the Asian salad, I have that once a week. It is terrific. The uh, fruit parfait, the apple dippers, the milk, the juices. Uh, more chicken. We sell almost more chicken than we do beef. So, I mean, I'm saying it's, it's different today. So I think we're going to grow by being better and providing better choices for consumers, and uh, uh, other, others will not be uh, growing. They'll be losing business. I was wondering if I could ask a question. Um, I'm very... Um I, I see your job at McDonald's as kind of being the antenna into the culture and figuring out where the culture is going and responding to concerns of your consumers. I'm wondering, at, and you've also been a company that's responded to pressure of various kinds, um, uh, animal rights and um, various groups who brought pressure to bear on you um, and have often responded in very positive ways. I'm wondering how we could help you push things further and harder. Um, LAUGHTER 
boycott. Uh, <laughs> well, you know, I, I think uh, I never had that question asked before. I it's men in a constructive spirit. I, I, I appreciate it. I think there should be. Uh, I think there should be uh, positive incentives. And uh, not sure what they all mean. You're in the academic field. You can figure it out. But I can. I'd like to have it figured out. I think there should be positive incentives. Uh, I work in the. When I get with my peers in the corporate social responsibility field, we all kind of like uh, complain and we whine. You know what we whine about? We whine. We whine because there's not enough consumer demand for all this. So I always wish. I mean, there's demand in this room, but you know. There, and I know people have different viewpoints on it, but in general, we're going to be, uh, we are going to be reflective of what most consumers want. We're a high-volume business. We're, we're not a niche business. We're not, uh, you know, a, a small shop. So we're a place for the masses. And we're going to go for what people want. If people want recycling in the restaurants like they're in Europe, you're going to get them. If, uh, if people don't want genetically modified foods, you don't get them in Europe but they're in the United States. Although you don't get them at McDonald's. Right. So and there's an example. You know, you talk about leading. Uh, you guys were selling genetically modified potatoes before 98 or 99, along with everybody in the industry. And um, for reasons I still don't totally understand, um, and I don't know what your thought process was, but after uh, McDonald's had basically, Monsanto had approached McDonald's before they introduced this product, and McDonald's was okay with it, evidently. Uh, well, let me, consulted on let me it. correct you then, because uh, potato, potatoes were just, I was involved with the whole process, so potatoes were just beginning to explore, Monsanto was just beginning to explore the GM version of potatoes. And, and since it was very controversial, of course, we were very concerned about it. And we asked our potato suppliers, where's, where's, where's the good here? What's the right thing to do? What's the benefit for the consumers? And uh, we never heard any answers that were positive towards what's good for our consumers. Was it adding any value to them? So we said, no, we're not interested. After having said yes? No, we never said yes. You never bought them? No, never, never. To our knowledge, never had them. You know, so they were just starting to come in, and we went through a whole process, and uh, we said no. So that's an interesting example. Though, and by the way, that, the year after McDonald's said no, the genetically modified potato was removed from the marketplace because McDonald's is responsible for buying, what, 7% of the... So that's a very positive... But this is a complex issue. By the way, we, uh, we uh, don't talk about this much, but we also... Remember when Monsanto was introducing GM wheat? They really wanted to introduce GM wheat. This is going back three or four years ago. And, uh, you know, it's one thing to introduce, introduce soya and other products, which, by the way, I don't know, they came in from nowhere. We didn't even know we were using them until they were there. But as an educated purchaser, we realized that GM wheat was coming around the corner, and before you know it, we're going to have our buns made from this. So we asked the same questions that we But I don't want you to get me wrong, because we're actually not against GMOs. We're not against biotechnology. But the role for biotechnology should be for a greater good, related to the good of the consumer, uh, something that's better for them, healthier, better quality, maybe safer, but the benefits that were being described to us weren't, weren't benefits. They're benefits that were for Monsanto or for I'm somebody else. I've got to say, Bob, you kind of remind me of the guy in the movie, uh, Thank You for Smoking. Where, where are you at? But I commend you 
It took a lot of gall to get on this stage in, in front of the most un-McDonald's audience on the East Coast. Anyway, my question is... Um, my question is, you talk about education or um, information, uh, MIC information. Um, all, the, all the information I really needed is when I saw Supersize Me. What is your response to that? And I think after that movie came out, the new tagline for McDonald's is, I'm loving it. My question to you is, what are you loving? Well, which question do you want me to The answer, I guess, on the movie part, uh, I think the movie points out uh, really important issues uh, in today's society of uh, what happens when you overeat and you don't exercise. So I think that part of the movie is, uh, are real issues, and I think that we all need to uh, address them. Uh, we all need to eat in balance, in moderation. And let's not remember it's not just about food. Uh, I don't know why people don't get up on the tables and holler about the lack of activity in this in this world. I grew up in the 60s and 70s. I was a kid on the street. I never sat down. We were about as active as we can, ride, ride bikes around, had recess, played tag, and all these things are like disappearing in our community. So we have important issues. For McDonald's, it's all about, it's all about the food, though. I think others need to play a role in creating a society that is way more active. Uh, I was asked over lunch, do I still wear my stepometer? And I do. Because for me to stay healthy, you got to do 10,000 steps a day. I'm telling you, you got to. And uh, I'm determined. So if I'm not active, you know, I'll, tonight I'll put in 3,000 steps to get my 10,000 steps. Uh, but it's a balance in life. And I think that's the benefit of movies and books that point out these issues, legitimate issues. I don't think McDonald's is always portrayed in the correct way. I'd like to second the motion that you were very courageous to come, Bob. Um, I want to ask you if it's ethical and responsible to market junk food to children. The, uh, I, I think our company uh, does, uh, has, we have very uh, responsible practices related to marketing to kids. If you take a look at what we uh, advertise, you know, we uh, advertise things that are in the proper portion size. Uh, commercials show kids in activity so that we can, you know, promote that. Uh, we have our own set of internal standards. There's some standards that you heard of this morning that we signed on to earlier this week uh, that, that says, yes, uh, we, we can do more and we should do more. Uh, then ultimately, it really comes down to the, the food. I take exception to your definition of the food. Uh, but uh, take a look at the food, take a look at the calories, take a look at the fat, take a look at the other alternatives that kids eat as well. So just take a look at the big picture. But we need to do more on food. You know, we can't settle on, uh, in, you know, we're t selling three times the 1% milk than we did four years ago because we introduced nice little jugs for them. Uh, we're selling apple juice, we're selling uh, apple dippers as a replacement for fries. Uh, we're exploring alternative food menu items for kids. It is one tough code to crack. Uh, I'm in, I've been in charge of this Global Advisory Council on a Balanced Active Lifestyle. We work with 15 of the very best nutritional experts around the world, and they're tough-minded, independent people. That's why I'm glad to be here. This is just okay. Because, you know, we get very constructive, solid, strong feedback all the time, and 
we are looking at trying to create more options for kids as well. But getting things that they will actually buy and enjoy is, 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 is a challenge. Is it on? It is. Hi. Um, I do applaud you for coming in front of this audience because, as you can tell, most of the folks in here probably don't eat McDonald's. Um, but with all due respect, I think it's irresponsible as a representative of McDonald's to say that you do not have the power. You're more powerful than some governments. And this body of people, along with other people all around this country, are bonding together to try to change this. You have created the agriculture system that we live with, and you can change it. And I would really hope that the progressive people within your organization would see that the future is changing and that the American public wants a different diet. Lynn, could you come up to front? Rita and then Peter. My question is to both of you. Uh, Thank you. <laughs> you don't know what it is. And Bob right? thanks you as well, I think. <laughs> I, I, read, uh, I read Michael's book, finished it over the weekend. I think a lot of good questions could be to <laughs> I know he drinks coffee. And, and <laughs> it, it, it's actually even to all of the panelists. If McDonald's were to offer one quarter of 1% of its annual profit in America, would the panelists at today's conference join with McDonald's to figure out how that money could best be used to create a better food system in our country? <laughs> you have no answer? Uh, is it worth my putting a lot of thought into? <laughs> <laughs> I'd be happy to. It's a wonderful thought experiment. Um, I would ask whether, uh, whether organic food is on your radar for McDonald's. Well, hey, it's on Walmart's radar screen, so that's interesting. Mm -hmm. And uh, we, have, we have some organic products. Uh, you know, a lot of what goes on in McDonald's, we're very decentralized. Uh, we're in 119 countries. The beauty of that, we get great ideas that bubble up. Europe tends to be a, a thought leader related to social, environmental, and agricultural issues. So we're using some different organic products in, uh, in Europe and looking at other sustainable type of branded uh, efforts as well. So I don't know. You know I, I'm not in charge of menu, but uh, I, I do think that you take a look at the past. The past is just the past. I think the future is, uh, you know, lots of different things could happen. I mean. Who would have thought that we'd be selling the most salads and apples in America today? Uh, I don't think anybody would have said that 10, 20 years ago. So I think a lot is possible. You know, to answer that question, we'd love to, we're looking to join into a, a broader coalition effort. You know, so I'll answer your question just more broadly. Uh, there's a great group that we're a part of in Europe called the Sustainable Agricultural Initiative. And it's a coalition of like-minded companies that really want to advance uh, you know, the, the sustainable practices at the agricultural level. We've been trying to get a North American chapter going on, and again, we just haven't been able to get others to join in. So the answer is, in, in general, yes, to join an effort. Uh, I think sustainability needs to be much further up the radar screen of everybody in agriculture. Peter? Um, 
I, I have a question for, for both of you, actually, but they're, they're separate questions. I want to thank you both for coming and enriching the conference. <coughs> um, for Bob, um, I'm sure you saw the results, and, and Paul Shapiro talked about it, that on November the 7th, 62% of Arizonans voted against the sour crate, and we saw earlier that a majority of people in Florida did. I think it's safe to say that a majority of Americans, including a majority of your customers, I assume, would not want that system if they could see it. Now, your, um, your social responsibility report says open doors, but I dare say that you haven't educated your customers to say that if you buy pig products from McDonald's, they came from sows who were confined, locked up all their lives, basically, in, in crates that they couldn't move around. So I'm asking you, since, this is, since there are viable alternatives, economically viable alternatives to this, whether if you really believe in open doors, you'll either tell your customers where their pork products are coming from or take some steps towards moving away from that. My question for Michael is, is, is a somewhat more philosophical one, I think. Um, in, in following through your arguments about uh, why you think we're justified in raising and killing animals for food, you get to one point in your book uh, where you start to ask, you say, well, even if they have good lives, we're still killing them. And if I read you rightly, you, you reject speciesism as such. That is, you don't think that it's just the fact that they're not humans that means that it's okay to kill them when it wouldn't be okay to kill similar beings, say similar humans without mental capacities that are superior to those of animals. And of course there are such humans. Um, and you say that uh, you know, you're not sure how to answer this and then you, it's the chapter where you're talking about Joel Salatin, the uh, Virginia farmer. And so you turn to him and you say, well, how does, what does he think about killing animals? And he gives a a, a religious argument. He says, I think, something like, well, God said that it's okay for us to kill animals. And that's basically the end of the discussion in your book. And I was somewhat disappointed with that because I thought you kind of slid out of the picture at that point. I wasn't sure whether you were saying that the fact that God gives us permission to kill the animals is enough answer for you, or whether you have a different answer that you'd like to give us now. It's a good question. I don't hold with Joel, uh, who said that the reason he, he... I asked, how do you get your head around... I was helping him slaughter chickens, and I asked, how do you get your head around killing animals? And his answer was, well, they don't have souls. End of story. Um, and I guess what I was saying by quoting that, even though I don't agree with it... Um, I mean, I'm not a... I'm, not, I'm kind of a spiritually retarded person, um, <laughs> certainly compared to him, um, was that it finally comes down to those bedrock human attitudes, feelings, and values, a question like that. And uh, that you're not going to, th and I say, I think I say around there, we're not going to think our way to an answer on a, a question as fundamental as that. I, I guess I hold with the kind of evolutionary ideas that I talked about earlier in the, in the thing, that these animals will only exist in the context of our farms. Uh, I think it's better that they live than they not live at all, um, and that the, their slaughter, uh, you know, and the slaughter of an animal that doesn't really have a conception of the future um, and can be done mercifully, uh, and I saw that it could be done mercifully, and I did it, um, is all right. Um, and that I think that, that uh, compared to some deaths they might have in the wild, if the fences of these farmers, farms came down, um, that, uh, that that was all right. Um, 
Now, I should say, you know, after I had this kind of um, running exchange with Peter, he, after I published an essay that became this chapter in the book, he, he wrote me, he sent me one of the great backhanded compliments of all time. He said, and he was exactly right. He said, well, congratulations, you've successfully defended 1% of the American meat industry. Um, and I think that's all I succeeded in doing. Um, that said, I did not succeed, I don't think, in defending the kind of meat industry that McDonald's supports or the kind of meat industry that, you know, all your supermarkets support. Um, but I think it was important to, to have that case, to have a case where it is humane, the animals are better to have had this life than no life at all, because, of course, with the exception of the pigs, who can make it on their own pretty well, um, all, our, our, all our farm animals w would be extinct if we did not eat them or... or essentially if we did not eat them, um, that um, and the role they could play in a genuinely sustainable agriculture, how, how important that was, um, that if you looked at it, if you do look at domestication as an evolutionary development and not a political regime, essentially, um, that, uh, that it was defensible. But it's not happening that often, it's not happening in that many places, um, and uh, we need to create a larger, uh, a, a larger space for those animals to have those lives. On the uh, gestation stalls for uh, uh, for uh, for sows, do you totally totally agree with you, Peter? I think you know we don't view what Paul showed as being uh, sustainable or acceptable. So uh, we agree with Temple. Temple's one of our chief advisors. Uh, she doesn't think that's the way things should be done in the far future. So I think for us to find uh, ways that we can, and we already are looking at alternatives working with our uh, broader Animal Welfare Council, working with suppliers in the industry. Uh, we'd like to, like to do something to make some changes there. You know, to answer that question you, you asked earlier, I mean, if, if McDonald's were, they wouldn't even have to spend one and a half percent of their profits, or how much did you say, half a percent? Um, I think a kind of a radical effort at transparency on, on, on a company like McDonald's, uh, or to use that money to create the kind of that thought experiment I was painting so that you could see, uh, and, and with the web, you know, it's so easy to do now um, that you could, you know, you don't have to put pictures up in your, in your stores, but the fact that on the website you could see pictures of the feedlots, pictures of the ranches before the feedlots, and pictures of the slaughterhouses, I think that that would drive a lot of change. I'll take one more question from this side over here because I haven't asked. Um, I actually have a question that would actually address both of you. For um, the McDonald's issue, I was wondering why you speak about all of these things, but you support the Center for Consumer Freedom, which acts in complete opposition to all of these things. And I think, I think it's sort of a greenwashing type of thing. And then... I'm not aware, I'm just, I'm not aware that we support them. Just this, the Center for Consumer Freedom... I, I'm not aware that we support them. So. Oh, really? I'm, I'm pretty sure that you're... Well, whatever. Anyway, and for Michael, um, my question is, how can you possibly say that an animal that isn't born has an interest in surviving? I mean, you sort of equate our right to eating them only because um, they would be extinct as a species, but if, if they're not present, they po can't possibly have interest, so they can't possibly suffer if, if we're not well, raising them, Well, you know, that, that comes from this, this perspective of looking at these as individuals and not as species. I think if you, you know, from a Darwinian point of view, I, I, I think that, that species do have interests. I know that for legal and moral frameworks, that's a, that's a very foreign concept. Um, but in general, species have an interest in survival. Um, I mean, not in a not in the sense in which moral philosophers talk about it, but um, it seems to me that, that it, it's better that 
there be such a thing as cow or chicken than there not be. Now, fundamentally, uh, you know, is that my personal preference? Or is that a, you know, it's also an issue of biodiversity, too. Um, that, that these, I, th I think these domesticated species are great creations. You can, you can call them cultural creations, and that we should preserve them for the same reason that, you know, we preserve other things that have come out of culture. Although they're a very special kind of cultural creation because they, they contain our culture, but they also contain the wildness from which they were, uh, 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 from which they grew. So, yeah, I mean, something that doesn't exist from the point of view of moral philosophy doesn't have an interest. Um, what I'm saying is it's better, I'm saying it's better that they exist than that they don't exist at all. Okay, I'm sorry I have to bring it to a close in order to stay on time. Coffee break is now. I'd like to thank both of our speakers. Return at four o'clock for the last yeah. session. There's no, and I, I gave that thing in the report that wasn't the book.